Let's say that you jot down an, a little note on a, uh, with a pencil, and, and you make a mistake, and so you erase it, and you try, try it again, and without really a thought, you brush those eraser crumbs uh, onto the floor. Now, why don't you give those eraser crumbs more thought? Why is the floor and the vacuum your, your first choice for that? Well, here's why. You find no value and meaning in eraser crumbs. You discard lots of things uh, for the same reason. Junk mail or fingernail clippings, that's gross. Empty milk containers or weeds, they're not valuable. They're not meaningful to you in any way. When a woman gives birth to her baby and holds it close for the first time, she's overcome with joy. She nurses her child with gentleness and care, her and her husband um, prepared for this child, and now they are smitten and engrossed in, in, uh, in this child and how to care for the child well. Why do those doting parents give their child so much attention and care? Because they instinctively recognize the inherent, immeasurable value and purpose of the child. How different human life is from eraser crumbs. How differently we act when we find value and meaning in something. In his book, River Out of Eden, Richard Dawkins uh, finds no, quote, rhyme or reason in, end quote, one person's suffering or another person's happiness, nor any justice in human life. Dawkins said, quote, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference, end of quote. Now, that worldview is pervasive in America. Should we be surprised at school shootings, abortion, child abuse, pollution, or corporate greed, when there is no purpose, when there is no good, when there is no evil and simply pitiless indifference, the, the logical step then is unashamed self-indulgence and reckless autonomy. Author Heidi Preeb wrote an article titled, Life is Inherently Meaningless and Realizing That Will Set You Free. Each of her seven points begins with, life is meaningless, and three of the points finish the statement like this, so don't waste it on things you never wanted. So be hedonistic, and so don't worry about making the wrong choice. In her haunting penultimate sentence, she adds, because if everything ultimately means nothing, then we get to decide what means everything. Folks, ideas have consequences. David in Psalm 8 gave us an entirely different worldview, a rational worldview that assures us of God's covenant love and our inherent worth and purpose as human beings in light of God's glory. People today need this song. So many people feel insecure they feel anxious, they feel worthless, and they crave a sense of purpose and belonging. And Psalm 8 has answers for them. The key that unlocks the door to humanity's value and meaning is the majesty and glory of God. So I hope that the Holy Spirit does three things for you in this message. Number one, enraptures you by the majesty and glory of God in His works. Number two, humbles you by the transcendence and grace of God. And number three, heartens you by the worth and purpose God has given you. Enraptured, humbled, 
and hearten. It begins here. The Lord is preeminent and glorious above all things, and his name is majestic. David began, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Lord, when it is in all caps, refers to Yahweh. Yahweh, the name that God assigns to himself, the name which God communicated to uh, Israel through Moses. Yahweh is the covenantal name of God, which reveals his self-existence and his eternality and his relationship with his covenant people. John Piper uh, gives 10 things that the great name of the Lord communicates. The Lord never had a beginning. The Lord will never end. The Lord is absolute reality. The Lord is utterly independent. Everything that is not the Lord depends on the Lord. The universe is by comparison to the Lord as nothing. The Lord is constant. The Lord is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. The Lord does whatever he pleases and it is always right and always beautiful and always in accord with truth. And the Lord is the most important and most valuable reality and person in the universe. How majestic is the name of the Lord. John Calvin understood God's name like this. The name of God, as I explain it, is here to be understood of the knowledge of the character and perfections of God insofar as he makes himself known to us. The name of the Lord is great. Jesus prayed, hallowed be your name. The name of the Lord is majestic, wide, large, powerful, magnificent, excellent, famous, dignified, regal, lofty, and glorious. The name of the Lord is majestic in the United States of America, in China, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, and in all the earth. And though his name is disregarded by most... It is no less majestic. In Nehemiah 9, 5, after reading God's law for hours, you thought Genesis 1 was long, reading the law for hours, the Levites and a group of men cried out, Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. David sang in Psalm 138, verse 2, For you have, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Psalm 148 verse 13 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. David continued in Psalm 8, You have set your glory above the heavens. And I think what David was doing there is trying to capture the transcendence and supremacy of God's beauty and excellence and splendor. God has authoritatively and conclusively fixed his glory above everything. 19th century Southern Presbyterian preacher William S. Plumer said this, The Jews spoke of three heavens. First, the atmosphere. Secondly, the starry heavens. And the heaven of heavens. Or the third heavens where God peculiarly manifests himself. Neither one nor all of these can contain him. His glory is above them all and yet his glory is on them all. The starry heavens are covered with the proofs of his majesty. So great is God's glory in this respect that the young and feeble-minded find themselves absorbed in contemplations on these works of God. End of quote. David began and finished this song with the preeminence, majesty, 
and glory of the Lord, particularly his name, his name. Do you ever use the name of the Lord your God in an offhanded way? In a flippant way? In a careless way? Just tossing it out like it has no meaning in everyday conversation. I've heard it among Christians. And that is a very serious sin because of the magnitude and the significance of his hallowed and his majestic name. Use it reverently because it is precious and it is precious to you. Use it reverently. You know, to be honest, sometimes the lyrics of my heart go like this. Oh, Lord, my acquaintance, how boring and uninspiring your name in all the earth. Sometimes I'm more excited about a cupcake than the name of the Lord my God. I struggle so deeply to delight in God. I struggle so deeply to feel as I should feel, to think as I should think, to respond to the the majesty of God like I should. And yet by the tune of his grace and word, God is orchestrating all in my heart. I love his name more now than what I did when I was 19 more than I did years ago, and that is by His grace. That is Him fueling something more inside of me to see more and more. Yes, it's so dim. Yes, I'm so weak. And you can probably identify this, but His grace is at work to give us a bigger vision of who He is. The melody of Psalm 8 is the majesty of the Lord's name. Now I want you to zero in on the phrase, our Lord. The preeminent, glorious, and majestic Lord is our Lord. Through Christ. Yahweh Adonainu. That's Hebrew. For O Yahweh, our Lord, or our Master. David knew the covenant love of God for himself and for all of Israel. Israel was not like the other nations. They were different. God had chosen to enter into covenant with them to set them apart from the other nations. They were distinct from the world. And this song... The song was more than just a generic praise of the Lord, but a covenant-sealed celebration of the universal majesty of the Lord's name. David could write, Our Lord, precisely because the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, precisely because through the redemption of the Messiah, David and all Old Testament believers could be assured of God's covenant of grace with them. The world doesn't sing this song. The world has another tune. We sing this song because it is our covenant-keeping Lord whose name is majestic in all the earth. Well, I'll shoot it straight with you. I'm not exactly sure what verse 2 means. What do we do with that when the pastor doesn't really know what to say? But I'll give it my best shot, okay? So you discern this as you read this. The Lord uses the praise of the weak to overcome the strong. The Lord uses the praise of the weak to overcome the strong. David sang, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When a little baby nurses from her mother, she instinctively sucks and drinks and is strengthened a a, a natural and beautiful ceremony which softly gives and sings tribute to God. The child is unable to speak. And yet... In her little instincts, she declares and celebrates the glory of God's power and providence. 
And she calls God's worst enemies to stop their rebellion and to fall in worship before God. Infants are sufficient apologists to overcome God's adversaries. Now, perhaps David had Israel in mind here, picturing them as babies uh, and infants dependent on God, surrounded by their enemies and God's enemies. And it would be from God's covenant community that the gospel uh, and joyful praise and worship and, and that silenced the defeat of all of God's adversaries. David might have that in mind. Either way, God's enemies, his adversaries are in view here and they will be stopped. They will be stopped because of the praise-filled force that God establishes by the mouths of babies and infants. After Jesus overturned tables and drove crooks out of the temple, he healed blind and lame people in the temple. It was an amazing scene, and the chief priests and the scribes saw it all, and they were infuriated somehow that he's showing compassion to people and healing them. Well, why? Well, Matthew 21 tells us that the little children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Those little kids were saying that Jesus was heir to the throne of David, the king whose reign and rule would never end, the one that God promised to give them. And the religious leaders, they didn't didn't like that at all. And so in anger, they said to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? Can you hear what these little kids are saying? Almost as if to say, I think, aren't you uncomfortable with what they're saying as a Jewish man? To which Jesus responded, yeah, yes, I hear what they're saying. Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Jesus applied Psalm 8-2 to those little children in the temple praising him as the heir to the throne, as the Davidic king that would come. The Lord uses the praise of the weak to overcome and shame the denial of the strong. God wants his son to be praised. There's much more here. And uh, look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Next point. The universe reminds us of our smallness and weakness and displays God's great care for us. David was gazing into the nighttime sky. I wonder what he saw without a whole lot of light pollution. You know what I'm saying? It just probably was an amazing sight for David. He was gazing into the nighttime sky at the expanse of the universe and contemplating the transcendence and the might and the capacity of the Lord. He was impressed with what he saw. And you know what? David didn't even have the science that we have today. To know what's out there. Christy Angelo wrote a short article for the Huffington Post titled, Seven Mind-Blowing Facts About the Universe to Put Your Ego in Check. Interesting title. He begins, we are, as the saying goes, but a tiny speck. He said, just consider for a moment that while Earth has an equatorial diameter of 7,926 miles, the Milky Way's is about 621 quadrillion miles. D'Angelo quoted astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson who said, if your ego starts out, I am important, I am big, I am special, you're in for some disappointments when you look around at what we've discovered about the universe. Then D'Angelo added something intriguing. He said, fortunately, studies have shown that in addition to an ego check, taking the time to experience awe and feel small can make people happier and less 
stressed. Why might that be? Scientists estimate there are at least 100 billion stars in our galaxy and at least 100 billion other galaxies in the observable universe. In 1977, NASA sent the Voyager 2 space probe into space, and after 40 years, it is 10.9 billion miles from Earth, speeding away at more than 34,000 miles per hour. Voyager 2 will take 296,000 years to pass Sirius, the brightest star in our sky. To reach the center of our solar system, it would take an estimated 450 million years. So here's what that tells us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, Romans 1.20. In 1997, Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey starred in a film, Contact, uh, where Jodie Foster's character, Dr. Ellie Arroway, hoped to find evidence out there uh, of alien life. And at one point in the film, Dr. Arroway tells a group of children, I'll tell you one thing about the universe, though. The universe is a pretty big place. It's bigger than anything anyone has ever dreamed of. So if it's just us, seems like an awful waste of space, Right? That incalculable space is God's reminder of our smallness, of our weakness, and his booming statement about his own immensity and his own power. Is there room for pride in a universe this big? Is it rational to feel in control as human beings? Is it rational to feel like we're in charge, like we're unstoppable when gazing at the moon, when gazing at the stars in the nighttime sky? The work of your fingers. Well, that's an anthropomorphism. I'm throwing these terms around like crazy. But a figure, it's a figure of speech ascribing human form to God. God doesn't have fingers. Okay? He's a spirit. He does not have a body. That's simple. David poetically expressed God's creative power. We, we are small. God is infinite, yet God is attentive to us in our smallness. David contemplated the vastness of the universe, and he raised the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Precisely because God is mindful of us, and God does care for us. Verses 4 through 8 is a general statement about God's common grace or God's kindness towards all human beings, which is distinguished from his saving grace and covenant love for his people. Uh, uh, Jesus said that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So for a time, God is very kind to even his worst enemies. By giving them this common grace, these these wonderful gifts. This this one line, verse 3, refutes the entire lie of deism. Just brings it down in one statement. God is involved in his creation. He has not created it and then took off. He's actively involved. He is aware and attentive to humanity. God gives even his worst enemies, even those who curse his name, even those who hate his son, Jesus Christ, he gives them life. He gives them sight, smell, hearing, touch, taste, food, drink, shelter, money, possessions, relationships, 
pleasure, hospitals, vacations, and on and on and on the blessings go. God is generous and kind to even people who belittle him by their brazen unbelief. Now, you may be an insecure, anxious, and self-deprecating person. You may beat yourself up and put yourself down. You may feel worthless sometimes. Uh, bar barely able to even admit anything good about yourself. That might be you. Well, you are small. You are small. And yes, you are absolutely weak. And yes, you are not in control. But have you carefully considered how God takes care of you every single day and lavishes you with blessings? Do, do you overlook his kindness while focusing on your own inabilities? I do sometimes. Has he not been kind to you? Has he not graciously given you wonderful things? God is mindful of you and God cares for your needs. Now, I have an idea. I can put this to the test, but I think it's going to do a lot of good for your anxious soul. See if this, there isn't merit to this. Get away from screens. Get away from screens. Turn technology off. Get outside and gaze at the moon. Gaze at the stars. Push your mind into the far reaches of the universe and quietly contemplate Psalm 8 and the marvelous work of God. Allow the incomprehensible vastness of the universe to make you feel really small, to make you feel really weak, and then be grateful that the Lord pays attention to you, that the Lord cares for you. Humility is good for the soul. Give that a try. I think it might help. Now, in humility, understand what it means to be a human being. God has crowned us with glory and honor. God has crowned us with glory and honor. David said, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Do, do you ever feel worthless? Do you ever feel insignificant? Do you ever feel like you can't really make any contribution to anything? Who are you? Well, God has a word for you. Now, there's debate among scholars as to whether David's use of the Hebrew word Elohim here in uh, verse 5 refers to God or refers to angels. So Elohim most commonly refers to God, and sometimes it can refer to angels. Now, of course, God made humanity less than himself, uh, but it seems a gross understatement to say that God made humanity a little less than himself lower than himself. We are infinitely lower than God, plus, by the Spirit's inspiration, Hebrews 2.7 in the New Testament quotes Psalm 8.5 like this. You made him for a little while lower than the angelus, or the angels. So we're on strong footing to say that God made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. And God has crowned us. That's a royal term, folks. He has crowned us with glory and honor and splendor. James Boyce, the uh, famous preacher of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, made a good point. He said this, Western society has lost sight of God. It no longer sees man as a creature made in God's image whose chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It has eliminated God from its collective conscience. But then... Because it no longer looks to God to derive its sense of identity and worth from him, 
It looks in the only other direction it can look. It looks downward to the beasts and derives its identity from the animal kingdom. He goes on, this is what evolution is all about. Eliminate God and evolution is the only theory left. We are only slightly advanced beasts according to this theory. Besides, since we see ourselves as beasts, we begin to behave like beasts. Touche. Look around. Look around. Are we surprised when we're nothing more than sludge that comes from animals? not bearing the image of God. God himself said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Every day, you wear the crown of glory and honor that God has given you. God gave it to you to wear. So you get fired. You get cut from the team. You get an F. He breaks up with you. Your mom or dad verbally abuse you. The scars from bullying run deep. You miss the promotion. You lose the sale. You get divorced. Your body doesn't do what it used to do. Where will you get a sense of dignity and worth and confidence when these types of things happen to you? Where are you going to draw from? Psalm 8 can be an anchor to your soul. An anchor. You need to trust God here when he's telling you these things because what he says assures you of your value, assures you of your purpose. God has crowned you with glory and honor. Yes, because of sin, God's image in you is dim. It's not shining that bright with with sin, okay? We all have that, and it should be much brighter, and it's too faint, and we're uncomfortable with that. But even so, you still shine the glory and honor that God gave you precisely because you were created by him. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ redeems and renews people. He is restoring the glory and honor of the image of God in his people. The sad reality is that sin is crippling people. Sin sin is marring the image of God in people. And it will eventually kill them and condemn them. But God is by his sovereign grace restoring people. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is urgent and wonderful news. He restores us. He makes us what we should be by his grace. Scripture humbles you. And at the same time, it heartens you. It heartens you. Scripture cuts right through the lies of the world and tells you how to think about God, how to think about yourself, how to think about other people. Without God's word speaking truth into your mind and into your heart, you're going to be so confused about everything. You will see it all wrong until the light of God's word through his spirit just opens it up to help you see it as you should. We need the scripture. He helps us to understand ourselves. He helps us to understand the world. He helps us to understand him. So if you want to be a balanced person, uh, immerse yourself in scripture and believe it. Believe it all. Let God tell you who you are and who he is making you to be in Christ. You have inherent worth and you also have inherent purpose. David went further. He wrote, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. 
As the crown jewel of creation, God has given us dominion and subordinate authority and responsibility over the earth as vice regents. Responsibility is the word there. Uh, Subordinate responsibility. Do you believe God when he tells you this? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. As human beings, you and I are vice regents over all the world. God has supreme authority over all things and yet he has conferred subordinate authority to us. So if you have no idea how you fit into all of this, you know at least this much, God has created you to have dominion over all the earth. You have great responsibility to steward what God gives you to steward. Your life is not meaningless. It is bursting with purpose, so then glorify and enjoy God. Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University, wrote years ago, quote, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. The life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee, end of quote. Despite what the intellectual elites would have you believe and what animal rights activism says, you and I are more than animals. We are worth more. In fact, we have dominion over everything on the earth. This does not entitle us to misuse or mishandle animals or any created thing, but it does allow us to responsibly steward creation for our benefit because we have been given this authority by God. How can your life be meaningless if God himself gave you dominion over the earth? This truth makes planting a little flower in the spring significant. This truth makes feeding your dog and your cat and caring for little snuggles, that makes that significant. This truth makes changing your baby's diaper significant. This truth makes hunting and fishing significant. God is big. You are small. But God has crowned you. He's crowned you with glory and honor. He has given you dominion over his glorious works and put creation under your feet, and that should hearten you. In fact, that should inspire you. Now, there's another layer to Psalm 8. We're cooking it up now. We're we're, we're turning the heat up here. You have to see Jesus Christ in this song to understand the song's depth. Son of man seemed to be Jesus' favorite title for himself. He was a human being, but he was more. Daniel 7 reveals that son of man also communicates Jesus' messianic supremacy as the glorious king who possesses universal and everlasting dominion. Even more, Psalm 8 is used three times in New Testament scriptures to exhibit the supremacy of Christ in everything. Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8, 4 through 6, and talks about everything being in subjection to Christ with nothing outside of his control. His suffering of death merited him the crown of glory and honor. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27, quotes Psalm 8, verse 6. Paul talked about Christ destroying every rule and every authority and power. He talked about Christ reigning and putting all his enemies under his feet. He talked about Christ destroying death itself. Christ is the second and perfect Adam who exercises dominion in the complete and perfect sense. Ephesians 1 is about God's power. God worked his might in the resurrection of Christ. Seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus Christ is the perfect son of man. 
And he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, the age to come. All things are beneath Christ's royal feet. Psalm, Psalm 8 is ultimately about Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of Man, who because of his covenant keeping has earned universal dominion over all things, and because of his grace, we are co-heirs with him. This is awesome. We will be glorified with Christ. We will reign with him over the new earth forever. This is why we can sing with all of our heart, along with Christ, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This should enrapture you, this should humble you, and this should hearten you all at the same time. So if you get nothing else, get this. Our Lord is unfathomably magnificent. Unfathomably magnificent. David ended right where he started, the majestic name of the Lord, our Lord in all the earth. With all that this song says about humanity, this is very important, the Lord is the apex of this song. The Lord is the apex of this song. His covenant love and majesty are put forth by David in stunning display to be enjoyed, to be marveled at, to be blown away by it. Be impressed with God when you read Psalm 8. Now, if you're moved by this song, if you hear it, you're tracking, you're like, man, this, this is a really good song. If it moves you, here are a few practical takeaways that will serve you. Number one, the majesty and glory of God should lead you to praise and worship God. Praise is natural and spontaneous when you're impressed. Number two, the majesty and glory of God should give you great humility to be, to be applied in all spheres of your life. Believing Psalm 8 snuffs out pride in your heart. How can you stand prideful in light of the truths of this song? Three, the majesty and glory of God should give you a healthy self-image and a sense of worth and purpose. Psalm 8 can help you battle feelings of insecurity and worthlessness and anxiety and self-deprecation. You don't have to beat yourself up. No matter what has happened in your life, no matter what pain you have caused or pain that you have experienced, no matter what they said to you, no matter what discouraging thing has come your way, Psalm 8 can help you see the glory and the honor bestowed on you and the meaning to your life. And number four, the majesty and glory of God should fill you with gratitude, thankfulness. Be thankful that God is mindful of you. Be thankful that he cares for you. Be thankful that you have inherent worth and he has given it to you. Be thankful for the work that God has called you to do. It has meaning. He's given you that job to do, whatever that may be. And be thankful that there is significance and meaning in your work, whatever that is. Be thankful for the beauty of creation over which God has made even you vice regents. Now, I hope Psalm 8 enraptures you. I hope Psalm 8 humbles you. And I hope Psalm 8 heartens you. As you praise and worship the great Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message of truth from David. We are so glad to know these things. And it just puts meaning into stargazing and enjoying the universe, God. You've made it such, such an immense space 
It is not a waste of space. It communicates loud and clear how amazing and big and majestic you are and that your name is important and we should treat it with reverence and awe and glory. God, thank you for what you have done through this text, God. And I pray that you will will lead us in these things, God. As we approach the Lord's Supper together, God, I pray that we would keep your glory and your majesty in view, that we would see in the Lord's Supper the great grace and power and majesty of you, God, in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.